I brought up the budget thing back at the end of Season 5 and the beginning of Season 6, because in many ways the budget thing would inform the development of Season 6, and in some ways DS9, although obviously by this point we have long since discussed Season 1 of DS9. You might be thinking, well, Laura, your whole point was that they were doing fine. Star Trek was on a high and the budget was high. Yeah, for Star Trek, not for TNG. There's an old saying, and by saying I mean absolute fact, which is disgusting. I forget the actual term for it. Uh, let's say you're in a department, and you are doing something. And let's just say, like, transportation, just to make one up completely at random. And in your transportation budget, you are under budget at the end, at the end of your... Good job. Congratulations. Your budget for the next year has now been cut. Yeah. <laughs> that old problem. In short, their budget was... in. So now, obviously that goes that direction. But it goes the other way, too. If you tend to push over... You know, if you tend to overextend yourself, the leash gets pulled back harder. Basically, they treated most of the early Season 6, the stuff we've already covered as if they just had the money. And by about the time this episode was being put together, they were like, cut it off, cut it off. And they're like, oh, I thought we had money. Not anymore, you need to cut it back. You know, yanking the leash back, like I said. Now you might be thinking, hang on, this is an expensive episode. And you're right. Two major guest stars with several minor guest stars. The whole set with the caves... Uh, granted, they got to save some money by reusing some things, but they were going to have another guest star, which would have to get mainline uh, billing. Basically, they'd have to pay Armin Shimmerman full credit. Just Let's just go ahead and get the name out there. And uh, let's see what else. Oh, yeah, they had the special effects of several areas that they were going to have to do. Basically, this is going to be a pricey episode. And they're like, okay, what, what the hell do we do? Because we, we can't eject this episode. This is the DS9 episode. This is the official handoff between TNG and DS9. Now, a funny thing. In real-life chronology, what happened is DS9, that is to say, Emissary, came out after Chain of Command Part 2, next week's episode. So, the way things actually lined up for us in real life was Chain of Command, Chain of Command, Emissary. And then there was kind of a handoff, a back-and-forth thing for the next about year and a half, two years, something like that. Until DS9 was the only thing on, or until it was, excuse me, until Voyager was now going, and you get the idea. Because there's that brief period where DS9 was the only thing, but that was only like 15 episodes or something like that. I've already covered that on the DS9 stuff, so forgive me for not remembering the number. Anyways, point being uh, that they wanted to have this be the lead in to DS9 for those who were still watching TNG. Here's the catch, though that wasn't the intent. The intent was for this to be the follow through on DS9. Emissary was supposed to be the handoff. That's why they said set the Enterprise there, had several scenes on the Enterprise, and had Picard and O'Brien both interacting with the Enterprise crew several times to try and indicate the whole handoff thing, right? This was originally supposed to be happening after Emissary had already come out. Now, various budget and time constraint issues basically meant that that didn't happen. So now they were like, uh... But this script had already been written as if DS9 was already a thing. There's a couple of minor inferences to that. In fact, there are exactly three in this episode. Now, you're probably still thinking, hang on, you started this all with budget discussions. Well, yeah. I'm just pointing out that this episode had a 
mixed development time when a lot of the behind-the-scenes staff were already shifting over and full-time working on Deep Space Nine, when work on the movie had already, preliminary work on the movie had already been, begun at this point, and they had to change the script at the last minute because of budget issues, and yet we still somehow got Chain of Command. In my opinion, one of the better, if we count these as, as one episode, or whatever, two of the better episodes in Star Trek history, in my opinion. This is easily in the, the VHS collection for me, right? Now, <clears throat> the way they decided to get around the budget issue was they decided to split it into a two-parter. I've tried to explain before why two-parters are cheaper, but in summary, if you've already built the sets and you've already hired the actors, it's cheaper to keep them on for a second episode than to do another completely separate episode with its own completely new budget and new sets and new actors. That's the simplest way to put it. But there's a lot of other ways and a lot of other little niggling details about why two-parters, at least back in the day, were cheaper to do than a single-parter. So this was a two-parter done purely for financial reasons. And yet it works brilliantly, but I'll, I'll talk more about why next time. Because really, you kind of see all of the original episode in this one. Okay, so the original pitch had nothing to do with the Cardassians, really. I mean, yeah, there was the handoff. But the real pitch for the episode was, Picard is replaced by a new unfamiliar captain. How do the crew deal with it? And that was the core premise. Which is actually kind of a cool premise, and I'll talk... Don't worry, we're going to talk about Jellicoe. I can't avoid talking about Jellicoe. God, I don't think any Star Trek fan in the last 20 years, no, closer to 30 years now, that's, that's what, 27 years at this point, has been able to avoid talking about Jellicoe. Anyways, but no, instead, uh, so what they did was they had the episode and Jellicoe was there, and you remember that big climactic scene at the end where they're in the cave and, oh my God, what was supposed to happen originally is Picard got out with the rest of them. It was all a trap. Ah, they were just trying to capture us. But we are watching you. da na 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 Jellicoe leaves, episode ends. Now you're thinking, well, hang on, Lore, that doesn't quite fit. Like, that would still leave several minutes of unfilled time. Yeah, exactly. I want you to rewatch this episode. I know several of you do. And I want you to pay attention to the way they shoot the cave scenes. Because those scenes are long. They're not super long. I'm not talking like bajillions of minutes or anything like that. But if you pay attention, the camera lingers for far longer than would normally happen. And they show far more actions, not action, but actions than normally would be. For example... A common thing in TV would be like, okay, we need to prepare to rappel down, all right. And then there'd be like an establishing shot of looking down, and then the camera would cap, cut back up, and then they're, they're going down. They're ready. Instead, this episode, they, the camera just lingers on them as they slowly get their, their equipment hooked up and the ropes tied up. I've got to get the thing in, and they tie this, and they get it tied to their outfit. They show all the steps. Why? Because they needed to flesh out these parts of the episode. Because... Well, because they needed to flesh... I, I've already given the point, because this was converted into a two-parter, so all of a sudden, the denouement was gone, and they needed to fill that space, because part two was is almost completely segregate. This is also interesting, though, because part two, as we'll discuss when we get there, isn't just the Picard and Madrid show, although it mostly is, but it still gives us even more good stuff about Jellicoe, which I do think is to the show and to the episode's benefit. So... <clears throat> This is also funny, by the way, because that means Gold Madrid would never have been in the original episode. Yeah. Now, you might be thinking, well, hang on, that means they changed this pretty late in production. Uh-huh. Which means they had to hire him very late. Uh-huh. I mentioned 
if you're watching the episode with me, do me a favor, especially if you got the Blu-rays like I have access to, which I think most of the digital versions now are, are the Blu-ray versions. I'm not actually sure about that because I literally have the physical Blu-rays. Um, watch David Warner. He's the guy who plays Gold Madrid. Watch his eyes. Man, that man's a good actor. I'll be praising the hell out of him next time. But he's actually reading a cue card because he didn't have a chance in time to record, to read his, uh, to memorize his dialogue because it was so alien to him, so tech-heavy and, you know, with lots of facts and figures. So what they did was they had a cue card on the camera, which is pretty normal. And if you watch, like, you know, see, I'm looking straight at the camera right now. So assuming you, that is to say the camera viewpoint, are Picard, he would look right there. And I don't know if you could even tell that difference, but if you're looking very closely, and I know I'm kind of small here, but if you're looking very closely, you can probably tell that my eyes have shifted just a bit to the side. And I'm still talking to you, I'm still engaging as you, but then, and then, funnily enough, once he finishes reciting the figures, you know, your serial number, dash, 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 blah, 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 born here and such and such, then his mind, his eyes shift right back to the camera. He also says his lines very deliberately, which gives him a chance to get a, get a chance to basically read in advance and have an idea what he's going to say next before he says it. God, I love David Warner. Anyway, sorry, so enough of that. We're, we're talking about the literally the last scene of the episode. Let's, let's rewind a bit. They bring in Ronnie Cox to play Jellicoe. Let me just go ahead and say that that was an informed choice. Probably has none of the, the actual significance anymore. I imagine if my niece were to watch this episode, she would just be like, okay... But for those of us who were around at the time, and who were digesting fiction in general at the time, Ronnie Cox was almost always uh, the bad guy. The corrupt cop, or the corrupt executive, or the corrupt cop who's corrupting executives, or whatever. He, he was kind of typecast, as most actors feel at one point or another in their careers. So they bring in this guy who a lot of viewers, historically speaking, were already predisposed not to like. Then they direct him to be as affable and friendly as possible. Now that's actually very interesting. And I think it's one of the things that has to be kept in mind when discussing Jellicoe. He is a friendly person, an affable person, right up until it gets to job time. And then his job mask goes on, you know, when he's on duty, in other words. When it's all about the, the business, his business mask goes on, and all of that friendliness kind of goes away. And then he pulls it right back off, it goes right back to being the friendly family man. It's a it, and Ronnie Cox manages it brilliantly. He does a great job of just just right back in in between being the friendly, affable family man and being the professional, no nonsense, let's get it done guy. And I think it adds tremendous nuance to the character. But I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm going to, I'm, uh, basically, in order to properly discuss this episode, I have to do it in pieces. I can't do it linearly like my normal format. So let's kind of leave the Jellicoe stuff at the side with one exception. So Jellicoe's big shtick is that he's competent, right? So if that is true, why is the federation Cardassian Peace Treaty such a piece of flaming garbage? Now, if you're wondering what I'm talking about... I direct you back to a lot of my discussions in Season 1, 2, and 3, and 4, arguably, of Deep Space Nine, which by now has long since gone live. There's many different times, mostly related to the Maquis, when it showcased just how terrible and awful this treaty is. Usually the episodes where Necheyev is involved, actually. Oh yeah, they say it Necheyev in this episode, and later on they say Necheyev. I'm not sure which is actually supposed to be accurate. I'm going to keep saying Necheyev. Anyways, <clears throat> so... <sighs> 
if he's so competent, and this is the big treaty that he set in place, why is it so terrible? Now, we know why, don't we? It's because he managed to muscle arm a good treaty into place, and then Federation diplomats managed to ruin it. I wouldn't even be surprised if that's the canon explanation. Anywho, why the assignment for the Black Ops team? We've got Picard, a man in his 60s, Crusher, who at this point is actually in her late 40s or 50s, or something like that. I, I forget, but she's getting on in the years as well. Although she doesn't look it because Gates McCutton is awesome, but anyways. What? And then we've got Worf. Okay, Worf makes sense. I'm with you. Why the other two? The stated reason is because she is critical. Because she needs to identify and get rid of the stuff. Which I'm pretty sure someone with a tricorder and a phaser could do, but okay. And Picard is critical because he, his crew has had experience with Theta Radiation, or whatever. Theta Tech Tech, back when he was in command of the Stargazer. Okay. So where's the other crew members of the Stargazer who are younger and more capable of doing a Black Ops operation? I hate to hammer this point in, but it is easily the worst part of both episodes. The logic, or lack thereof, in sending Picard, Crusher, and Worf as the Black Ops team is nonsensical. Now, damn it. <laughs>I hate those sneezes. They just come out of nowhere. Just, I'm sitting here talking, all of a sudden my nose is like, attention, attention, it is sneeze o'clock. It's like, wait, what, what, no, wait, wait, I'm talking, give me a minute. Why send those two? The excuse is pathetic, and what's funny is later on Data even mentions, as they start to piece together this was a trap for Picard, Data even mentions, oh, he's the only P captain with that experience. Okay, why did they need a captain with that experience? You can't tell me they don't have anyone else. I mean, yes, I know, Section 31 wasn't invented yet, but this is still a black ops. A, in the traditional sense of the word, an operation that's off the books, that has official deniability. That the government will say, you were there, not on orders, if it happens, and there's no proper record of it. Right? And they decide for that mission, I mean, do I need to explain my point here? What's funny, though... I was thinking about it, and I actually wrote down a note here, and then I scribbled it out on my notes. It says, this is our first black op operation in Star Trek. And I realized, wait, no, it isn't. The Enterprise incident back in TOS was a black op. And technically, obviously, Enterprise has black ops, too. But, I mean, chronologically speaking, real-life timeline, this is our second black ops, I think. Anyone can think of any other ones? Obviously, Discovery and Enterprise would both later add black ops into the past. But you get the point. Anyways. <sighs> So, at about 22 minutes and 58 seconds, they finally reveal the plan. It's, this is why we're being chosen. We need to go. The Cardassians have this literal doom weapon, which can perfectly kill everything except the equipment, and then leaves away the fresh scent of pine. And so, as a consequence, this is the horrifying thing that is incredibly dangerous. And everyone's agreed not to use this incredibly dangerous types of weapons because, not because they're horrific and horrible and nightmarish, uh, but because of the fact that they're that difficult to control. But we think the Cardassians are trying. What I find funniest about that is nobody has, any, has a hard time believing the Cardassians would do this. I mean, why would they? Do you have a hard time believing it? Remember, at this point, we don't actually know all that much about the Cardassians, but i got to be honest, even knowing what we know from Deep Space Nine, I could see the Union doing this, the military government, or at least trying. 
So, okay, fair enough. So they need to deal with it. The really weird thing to me, though, is this kind of weapon... I don't know, maybe I'm just me, but I would think that the first Black Ops operation would not be to neutralize. It would be to investigate. And upon confirmation, would be a sufficient Cass's belly for all-out war. Now, I know the Federation doesn't like war, but remember, even the Romulans are in favor of this treaty, and this could be a, a thing to pull in anyone else. So let's say the Federation doesn't decide to go after this. Do you think the Klingons would hold back from going to war with the Cardassians over this kind of thing? How about the Romulans? Or anyone else, really. I mean, the Cardassians are not a major power. They're a power, don't mistake me. But they're not, a, they're not at the big three. They're like one step below the big three. And I bring that up <laughs> because this, the way they deal with this whole situation is, is extremely flimsy, and I hate to keep pointing that point out, but it's kind of critical because it's the basis of the entire episode. I find it funny that over on Deep Space Nine, whenever they need someone to be just kidnapped and tortured or whatever, they just have it happen on a trip to Ryza. You know, n n none of this whole, oh, God, we need to you know, take him away kind of a thing. We need to leave. No, no, no. They just, he's, Picard's going to Ryza, and then, <laughs> anyways. Or a medical conference. Those are the two. It's either Ryza or a medical conference. <sighs> All right, so they're in the, they're in the shuttle. Set in a course. For Tormund 5. Now, okay. I didn't mention this earlier, but in the very beginning, there's this line Necheyev says, which I freely admit I actually missed until this viewing. She says, thanks to the recent evacuation of Cardassian military vessels from the Bajoran sector and then redeployment to our front, we think they're gearing for war. Then Necheyev gives a whole bunch of dumb answers to crew members because she has no answers for them because she's a terrible admiral. But that's neither here nor there. As an aside, I have no rancor for the woman who plays Necheyev. She plays her hard, you know, fierce, to the point, very brusque, which is exactly correct, actually, for that kind of military admiral. So I have nothing against her. It's just the lines that are put into her mouth are generally stupid. Anyways, <clears throat> but I, you heard that point, right? The ships which had already evacuated Bajor. Now, it's a very brief line, and it's just run by and no attention is paid to it. But I point it out because this script, like I said, was supposed to come out after Emissary. And this is one of the three points that showcase that. That line is still in the script. And when Picard is like, Tormand 5, what he was supposed to say is Deep Space Nine, which, funnily enough, is even the same number of syllables as Tormand 5. He even says it in a similar manner because he was directed to. I'm only pointing this out because this is how late in the game these changes were being made. Very, very late into the things. They were just like, um, uh, uh. In fact, the scene on Tormund 5... Ignoring the fact that they reuse a uh, a match shot from a previous episode, which they weren't ready to do. They actually filmed this on the promenade of Deep Space Nine. You can tell. I mean, I could tell. Anybody paying attention could tell. That is clearly Deep Space Nine's set. But what's funny is everyone involved, the producers, the cameramen, the director, the actors, were all irritated because they had to film in very cl tight, close quarters and barely allow the camera to move because... It was so obvious it was the promenade. Cork's bar was literally right over there, which was where they were supposed to be to begin with. Again, as I mentioned, it was originally supposed to be Quark that they were reaching out to, and he was going to help them get a runabout, and that was going to get them onto the Cardassian thing. Now, I'm not saying that should have happened per se, because 
that leads me to another point, but I'm going to save that point till next episode. So just do me a favor. Keep that in the back of your mind for next week, okay? So then we have the padding scenes. I've already talked about that. They, they spend way too much time in the cave. And then it's like, oh my god, it's a trap. And, you know, the end, right? I haven't talked about Jellico yet. Jellico is a very divisive figure among Star Trek fans. And when I say divisive, I want to be very clear with my terminology. He is someone who I have seen people hate and love, and not a lot of in-between. Now, because I said that, there's going to be people who say that they have no strong feeling on him whatsoever. And that's fine. But in my experience, most Star Trek fans who are invested enough into the show to know who Jellicoe is on command will say, ah, or yeah, one of the two, and basically nothing in between. And I think in hindsight, it's very easy to understand why. Now, when I was a kid, uh, by this point I was entering high school, wasn't I? No, I wasn't in high school yet. This is 93, I think? Eh, whatever. Getting along in the years, you know, a teenager at this point. And yeah, this would have been this would have been uh, just before junior high. This would have been junior high. There we go. So at that point in history, me and my friends were, uh, you know, we'd get together basically every day, every week, excuse me, and talk about Star Trek and discuss it, kind of like I'm doing with you guys right now. Except I'd hear them back immediately, rather than weeks or months later in the comments section. I'm sorry, I'm getting way off topic. When we'd come to discuss this, all of us hated Jellico. That's the point I'm trying to make. Now, in hindsight, it makes obvious sense why. Now, I'm going to point out a couple of nitty-gritty details, but the main point is he's not Picard, and he's not doing anything to ingratiate himself into the audience. In short, he is more or less deliberately designed to be irritating. Thing is, he's written very well and acted very well. As I kind of hinted at earlier, Ronnie Cox does a great job with him, and his role is actually very well designed. He is competent. He is, in short, not the obstinate bureaucrat. And that, in its own right, is actually praiseworthy. Star Trek has been using the obstinate bureaucrat stereotype since TOS. It is a very old and very common stereotype. How many times have we seen the Commodore come in, I'm the one who's in charge and I'm going to make the orders, and they're just a boob, right? They have no idea what they're doing or how to do it, and they fumble about and they make things worse. And we hate them. Because that's the point of the obstinate bureaucrat. Jellicoe kind of fulfills the, full, the, the slot of the obstinate bureaucrat without being one. He is designed to provoke audience reaction, for the audience to dislike him, and yet careful and consistent effort was made to show that he isn't a worse captain, just a different captain. So it makes sense why people back in the day wouldn't like him. He's different, changed, etc. He's also kind of irritating. And this is the interesting point. I was re-watching this episode with careful detail because I decided to put all of my opinions on Jellicoe at the side and decide for myself what I think of him here. We'll see if that changes next week because I haven't seen part two yet. The thing is, he is very right in how he approaches running a military ship. It's not something that I would get along with particularly well, I'll freely admit that, but then again, I wouldn't fit well in the military. I get along with military people when not on the job, which is a key distinction point. And if you remember, I already kind of mentioned that he is completely different when he's got the on-the-job mask and when he's got the normal mask. I would get along with Jellicoe off the job just fine. On the job, well... And so he makes the point several times, I don't have time to, to, to make this work, okay? I don't have time to give people a thing. Uh, we're in a crisis situation. 
This is a military situation, and I'm on charge. I'm the point man. I'm the one whose neck is on the block, and I'm the one who wants things to be run in a very specific manner because this is how we're going to do things. That doesn't mean he's right. It doesn't even mean he's correct, but in my opinion, he is both in this case. I know that sounds like a strange statement. There's a quote about this, and it's from my great-grandfather, who uh, served in the Navy during World War II on the, uh, on the Pacific Theater, specifically. On a PT boat. I can keep giving you information. He, uh, <laughs> I'm going to stop there. He, oh, how did he, he said it so wonderfully. It was something along the lines of, second-guessing yourself is the luxury you indulge in when you're no longer in the moment. And he, he elaborated to me that when you're in a combat situation, when you're in a military situation, you make choices and you stick by them and you work with it, right? And you will make wrong choices and you will make right choices. But your point is you have to choose and commit. Later, you can question how much you screwed up. But right in that moment, you do not have that luxury. And that's one of the things I like about Jellicoe. There's a wonderful line. It's actually probably, I know this is so stupid, but it's probably one of my favorite lines in this whole episode. He, he does his whole thing with the Cardassians, which I'll talk about in a minute. And then he goes out and he says, okay, I want you to do this whole strategy. Then he leaves and Riker says, he's certainly confident. And Troy says, no, he's not. That is a wonderful humanizing line and a great showcasing of Troy as a character and how you could use her as a narrative sense. Because we get characterization on Jellicoe from her, thanks to her unique position there. And that gets across the point. He is not arrogant. Jellicoe is not doing this thinking this is absolutely the correct thing to do. He is making a decision and committing to it. And that is what a military commander should do. And I like that. I like that a lot. You can kind of get the impression, and of course, Mr. Cox does a great job of portraying someone who understands the stakes and is frankly terrified of, of how horrible this is going to be. No wonder he surrounds himself with pictures from his son. He even says pretty much flat out to Picard, Picard, you're probably going to die, and the Cardassians are not going to back down, and we're going to go back to war. He doesn't say it like that, but that is what he means. And he's right. If not for very specific circumstances, there's actually a pretty good chance that chain of command would have directly led to war. Like actual war. And, don't mistake me, the Federation would have crushed the Cardassians like a bug. But, I mean, that's still a horrible thing, right? And nobody really wants that. Even the military man doesn't want that, right? Anyways. Here's the catch. Now that I've said all of that in defense of Jellicoe, he nests a little bit too much. Now, I nest. I nest a lot. I have my own very particular way of doing things. I like having my desktop laid out in a certain way. I like having my desk laid out in a certain way with my, my personalized keyboard and my personalized mouse. And I like having these tools here and these tools here and everything's exactly where I know where it is. I like being able to customize in a video game rebinding key bindings to something that makes sense for me or being able to you know adjust how the UI works or stuff like that you know I am very much a customizer I nest a lot and I freely admit that what the, this then of course leads to the reason I personally feel a sufficiently large number of people are irritated by Jellicoe because he nests a lot he comes in 
and brusquely demands that things change to what he prefers. Now, in some cases, there's good justification for that, like the four-shift thing, or the fact that he wanted... Uh, in fact, I wrote this down. So, he wanted the... Uh, he wanted to readjust the stations. He wanted to readjust the power so it would focus more on combat. He wanted to change the power transfer rates. That's actually really important. Uh, he wanted to address the coil efficiency, which means shutting down several of the research labs and facilities. And all of that is completely understandable and acceptable. He also wants the fish gone from the ready room. Oh, and Troy needs to change her outfit. And, God, I actually don't remember all that. I didn't, I didn't write down all of those. I should have. He basically does several things to customize things to his preference. Um, Captain on the Bridge. That's actually a really minor point. But he's big on someone saying Captain on the Bridge whenever he comes on. There's just a lot of little details that show that this is how he wants his ship run. And he even says flat out, the Enterprise is mine. He says that to Picard. I think that whole thing is the biggest reason why people don't like him. Because he just butts in and changes things to his preference. And it's not just the characters that have gotten used to that. It's us. And so now we are the ones experiencing this change. And he's not polite about it. He's not affable about any of these changes. He just does them. Which I think is very interesting. I'm very curious to talk more about Jellicoe next episode. But before we go forward, I want to give special praise to some of the things he does. So first of all, as I mentioned, the adjustment of the Enterprise to, to military focus actually makes a lot of sense to me. I know that sounds strange because a Galaxy-class ship is always, always ready to fight, but he doesn't want the, the Enterprise ready to fight. He wants the Enterprise ready to win. Think for a moment. We've talked about this over on Deep Set Down already. Think about how much raw power a Galaxy-class ship pumps out to keep all those systems and all those displays and all those mechanics and all of those entire departments functioning all the time. The holodecks and the, the stellar cartography and the exobiogenetic whatevers. I mean, all of them, right? Now, what Jellica wants is for all of that to be redistri redistributed towards military affairs. He wants that on the efficiency. He wants that on the transfer. He wants that on the shields. He wants that on the sensors, and he wants it on the weapons. And all of that makes perfect sense to me. He is effectively walking into a war zone, and he knows it. So, I'm with him on all of that. I'm not sure about the four-shift thing. That one is probably the only gray one here. And I'm, I er erroneously mentioned that in the good decisions he made earlier. I didn't mean to do that. I'm not sure what I think of the four-shift thing, especially since he expects it to happen now, with no transition period. For a temporary thing, okay. I mean, I can understand, you know, uh, there's actually a term for that. You know, for the duration of the crisis, I can understand extreme shifts in order to shift to that. The problem is, that's going to do significant damage to people's efficiency and ability to do their jobs, because all of a sudden their entire sleep schedule has just been yanked one direction or another, and changed in both duration and position. So, <sighs> here's the thing. On the one hand, I'm pretty against that. That's probably a call I would not make as a boss. But on the other hand... He makes that call now, and in fact, this is an interesting point. He insists, I don't want to talk about this, Riker, I want it done. Now, that is Jellicoe's command style. He is not working with his people. He is commanding his people. Whether that's correct or incorrect is up to you to decide. That's more of an opinion. And if I might be so bold, I think it depends on the circumstances, which is correct, too. 
But ignoring that, the point is he has decided that this is correct and there are advantages to a four-shift schedule when you're in a crisis situation. Under those circumstances, it would make sense that he doesn't want to debate it. He doesn't want to deliberate. He wants it done. Why? Because the sooner it's done, the more chances they'll have to get used to it and be on the new sleep schedule. And then when the actual crisis hits, they will no longer have the sleep deprivation problems as badly as they do right now when they're shifting over. Rip the Band-Aid off. So, then he starts negotiating with the Cardassians. Now, this is textbook, but it's, it's very well done. First, he makes them wait almost an hour. Or maybe it's over an hour, but it's about an hour. Then, when, he, when they actually get to talking, he just blows up, rushes out. And then he's like, all right, here's what I want you guys to do. Okay, we're going to go ahead. Uh, actually, no, I'm sorry. Let me rewind for a second. First, he attacks the Cardassians' position twice. I forgot about this point. First, he brings in two people, which was not part of the arrangement. So he's already not only making him wait on him, but he's violating the terms of their agreement. And when called on it, he does the classic passive-aggressive insult, Oh, I'm sorry if their presence alarms you. To which the Cardassian has to immediately defend himself. They're not alarming me. What are you talking about? I'm not alarmed by this. Then... The other guy starts talking about, oh, ships, and I'm here to discuss this. And the guy's like, okay, we're not here to discuss little minutiae. We're here to discuss real issues. Once again, belittling his position. Then he blows up at him and leaves. And then he lays out his strategy to Troy and Riker. Credit to Troy and Riker. They pick up pretty quickly how this is going and play along perfectly. In fact, Troy does a good job several times of being the good cop to, uh, to Jellicoe's bad cop. And he lays it out perfectly. You need to go back in there. You need to try and calm him down. Just say that I'm a loose cannon, and you've convinced me to go ahead and come back to the negotiation table. Go ahead, and uh, he's going to probably insist on bringing his aides over now. Show that I'm probably going to disagree with that, but you'll go ahead and convince me to allow that. In short, what he has done here is engineered an entire set of circumstances so that the Karasian is on the, the back foot constantly, verbally as well as mentally and emotionally. So he has to defend himself. Okay, and then he is seen as giving a concession when in fact all he is doing is allowing the other side to have something that doesn't matter. It's, like I said, it is textbook negotiation, but it is brilliantly executed. And then, of course, that leads to that brilliant line, no, he's not. So then they go ahead, and they have the final Cardassian meeting with them. And There's this wonderful bit where they do, again, the typical uh, thrust, counter-parry, counter-thrust, verbal sparring. Accusation, deflection, confirmation. Very classic. But my favorite one, though, and this is something that's so subtle, I don't think the episode ever actually outright says this. The Cardassian asks where Picard is, and Jellicoe says he's been reassigned. That is all they need to know, that their trap has worked, that they have successfully lured Picard, which, if you remember, was the entire goal. It was stupid, but it was still the entire goal. So, this, basically, just by asking the innocuous question, he can now confirm to high command, regardless of what's happening over on whatever such-and-such with Gold Madrid, that yes, the plan worked, the trap is being sprung. Nice little touch. With that, Gold Madrid shows up.
I'm going to save pretty much all of my additional thoughts for part two. We've talked quite a while already, and we'll, of course, have more to analyze about Jellicoe in part two. I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts on this episode, and I will see you guys next time.